Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade, here in the podcast studio, joined by my good friend and colleague, the Reverend, the Dr. Michael Berg. Jason was going to be joining us. Uh, He had some family stuff uh, that apparently came up, and so it'll just be the two of us. And we are going to be talking about a topic that may uh, seem weird. Uh, This is two Lutheran guys, two Lutheran pastors, uh, two guys who are paid to teach Lutheran theology, and we're going to be talking about the traditional Latin Mass versus the Novus Ordo, which is uh, Roman Catholic worship wars. May I interject? Yes. That uh, please do. Lutheranism, in the good small C Catholic way, understands that this is a part of uh, our heritage as well, whether we admit it or not, whether we like it or not. That the old Latin Mass has roots that goes back to, I would argue, in some cases, to to the Bible. Right, like there's things pulled from the Bible that we use, and that uh, this was something that that the core was there that wanted to be Lutherans wanted to reform, and uh, you fast forward to the Novus Ordum, the the new order uh, coming out of the 1960s Vatican II Council, uh, we picked up quite a bit of that, sometimes without knowing it, and partly not necessarily be, partly because Protestants were invited there, and so. Um, you know, they got to feel like they had had their say, and so three-year lectionary, yeah. and you know, stuff like that. As the old saying goes, when the when the Pope sneezes, the Lutherans catch a cold. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this is not, A, not something completely outside of our experience and our knowledge, and also very practical. This is not, we're not, we're not this is not like something, oh, this is what they're doing over here. It, it affects our culture in the church and outside of the church as well. Yeah. And so we've talked about, um, by way of background, I've been doing for several months now, kind of like a trying to hit up different churches in Milwaukee, historic churches, not just Roman Catholic, um, a variety. But the Roman Catholic ones are really easy to hit up because most of them have weekday masses. You can go to the mass, then kind of see the church. Um, and so I've, I've done a lot of that. And uh, for kind of the research I'm doing, this project I have in mind, currently has me reading some uh, old-school Catholic theologians um, through the lens of, uh, for want of a better term, Luther's spirituality. Um, But uh, I've been following some people on Twitter as a result of this, some some Catholic theologians or priests, and uh, then that got me seeing other stuff pop up from Catholic Twitter. And just something I've, I've learned, um, I, I get off social media and then I'll get it again. But um, It's like a bad habit you can't fully get. Anything, yeah, that you put before Twitter is just going to be a somewhat toxic version of that thing. So, like, the they will call Catholic Twitter a thing. People will be like, oh, yeah, I'm part of Catholic Twitter. And then there's Lutheran Twitter, but for some reason some of them have, like, buffaloes by their name. I don't know this, why this is, but... Um, they're almost always going to be not what your main experience with that thing should be. Um, will be as it is distilled through through Twitter. Um, 
But Catholic Twitter is a um, that's you just can't not look at it sometimes. And one of the things I've been fascinated by is this summer there have been big fights about are you a Novus Ordo Catholic? Um, keep in mind when I say Catholic, I mean Roman Catholic. I just they say Catholic Twitter. Are you a Novus Ordo Catholic, or are you a TLM, traditional <coughs> Latin Mass Catholic? Also known as the Tridentine Mass. Right. And so this, um, the traditional Latin Mass had become a bigger thing, especially in America, um, when Benedict uh, opened things up a bit and said, you know what, um, if some people want to do this, this is fine. And you had um, fraternities of priests, and you had certain dioceses that maybe encouraged us more than others. You had some parishes that adopted this. Um, for instance, in Milwaukee, this has really turned around St. Stan's, um, a church that has been reinvigorated by this. They have renovated it. and I mean, all sorts of resources have been poured into this, and it's become a magnet for a lot of young people. Um, it has its very own kind of sense of community there, which is served by, I think, the Christ the King Institute or a broader thing that's <coughs> focused on the Latin Mass. Um, Benedict had kind of opened Can I do some history first yep. real quick? Yep. So a Council of Trent, uh, fifteen late 1500s, so 1570s. Takes place over decades. Like 18, they'll call it, they'll recess, they'll call it again. 18 years, I think, maybe even more than that. I remember. Um, <clears throat> where... This is counter-Reformation stuff. It's the council that everybody had been calling for since the Reformation started. And instead of, hey, let's reform theologically, it was more, this is this is what it means to be Roman Catholic. This is what, what they would say. This is what it means to be Christian. And there were reforms in there, but they were Roman Catholic reforms. It was a doubling down on what they... Catholic renewal is how some would put it. And we would, uh, in our Luther series, we we did mention this quite a, quite a, quite a few times. And a part of that, I mean, some of the reforms were good, right? Mm -hmm. But they tended to be more moralistic reforms. Like bishops should be than, visiting you know. their parishes. Priests should get better at preaching. And for the Lutherans, it was they they wanted a theological reform. We've talked about that before. Part of that was this is what Sunday morning is going to look like, and you do not deviate which was very wise on their part because they understood that liturgy is one of the ways that, that forms people and their faith, and you control that, you control what's going on. And so the impulse was good. Now, from our point of view, that smacks of, of legalism, and, and rightfully so, but the, the extreme to the other side is, is a problem too. So this becomes kind of a static thing. There are going to be obvious reforms and stuff like that but but before there were quite a few different order orders of mass um oh, uh, there was a lot more variety than people appreciate right. in the in, middle ages in the middle ages where we we have mentioned that before and um so this is going to really it's going to be static there's going to be some changes but it's going to be a static and for 400 years just think about that for a second vatican ii comes and says there's going to be a, a, a quite a few changes here now the central texts of the Mass are going to remain the same. But there's going to be quite a few changes, which we will get into. So, okay, we've had some time here with the Novus Ordum. We've had a generation, and right away there was already people that wanted a reform of the reform. So what you're saying is uh, Benedict XVI comes and says, 
it is now okay for you to also go back to this Latin mass. So now we have this division where you're going to say in certain places, in certain places with certain people doing it. Right. And sometimes it can be this beautiful thing. Like you said, with St. Stan, sometimes it can be a quirky little group over here. That's wanted to be more pure and stuff like that. And so, uh, that that's the background and that picks it up to where you were, you were. Yes. At. Okay. And we're still in the intro, but the reason we're introing this so much is for a lot of our listeners, they're going to be like nervous Odo, nervous Odo, TLM, what is it? <clears throat> so the the two groups that we'll see that on Twitter and in Catholic media, right, if you ever watch uh, EWTN or um, you go on YouTube um, you're, and you uh, are looking up anything about Catholicism, it won't take long and something like this discussion will come up. Um, this has become a big debate. And many of those who favor the TLM traditional or traditional mass loved benedicts and to be fair as a lutheran there were certain things about benedict that were heartening um his emphasis on objectivity uh um he was very deep theologically now sometimes that's problematic because he's very deep on stuff you disagree with but a luther scholar he knew what he was talking right his about. works on jesus of nazareth are, are are very interesting um he respected lutheranism he even uh, said some nice things about the Augsburg Confession. Um, and now you have Francis, who's a very different pope. Um, and I will say, Mike and I have talked about, I don't know how much we'll get to do it in this episode, um, but we have two documents um, that we both read or are reading for this. Um, the first is a um, a modu proprio. This is a, it's like the pope saying to bishops, Here's my encouragement for things that you should be doing in your diocese. Um, it's it's kind of a way of policing things, maybe somewhat. And this is uh, Traditionis Custodes is the document. And you'll see that um, if you're on YouTube, <clears throat> on Twitter, whatever, get referenced. And this has been very unpopular with the TLM crowd because it's, it's really curtailing um, what Benedict had somewhat opened up. And to be fair, Benedict didn't necessarily mean to open up as much as things get... Just like Vatican II, people say Vatican II, and they they can mean clown masses, or they can mean you know legitimate things that are in the text of Vatican II. Um, people run with things. We see this in Lutheranism too. Um, the second one, which I really think we could do an episode on, and I, we both have kind of said, wow, there's some surprisingly good stuff in here, um, is an apostolic letter. So it's not like full-level encyclical. Um, which would be like next level authoritative. And none of this is infallible, right? He's not, it's very rare that someone will say this This, this is ex cathedra. Um, but Desiderio uh, Desideravi, um, which comes from Jesus saying in the Lord's Supper, I've eagerly desired to eat this supper or to celebrate this supper with you, uh, this Passover. And so um, we might have another episode on that because I think it'll be interesting to have a Lutheran's take on this. But, Can I interject yep, one thing? Absolutely. Um, more and more, I will actually go to the source. So I say the Roman Catholic Church, and I actually really I have a caricature in my mind, uh, usually of like Leo X. And there are some things that 
Pope John Paul II um, had had written that uh, not only would we wholeheartedly agree with, right, but would surprise you about their theology. And we have to remember that if you came up to a Roman Catholic priest and you said Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation and he paid the price for the sins of the world, they would go, Amen. They would agree with that. Now, we have, we're, we're, there's still going to be a semi-Pelagianism idea there. Of course, you have problems with the co-redemptrix of Mary. Right. Co-mediatrix. Uh, yeah, those, those are, yeah, excuse me. Those, those sorts no, those two, of they're things. different things. Yeah. Right. Those sort of things. At least she's the mediator, if not sometimes co-redeemer, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, but it's kind of an act of charity to actually read and to appreciate and to agree with your so-called opponent before you disagree with him or her. And there are some very thoughtful works on certain things. And we've said it before, there are things we can learn from the Baptists and there are things that we can learn from from the Roman Catholics. This is a part of being... There's in, things we can learn from the Hindus. There's, this is part of being in the one holy Christian church. Oh, yeah, not the Hindus right. with that part. Right. But there are, yeah, there are points of connection right. with, with people who are spiritual seekers and people who have the same uh, biblical heritage that we do, even though we rightfully would disagree on not only certain points, but whole ways of thinking, too. That's so this has been a long introduction, mm -hmm. but I think that's an excellent point Mike raises, and I think it's a good one in this context because when I saw Mike then today, pretty early on in us talking, like, you could use this in your worship class, right? It could be fodder for, like, things, like, that you agree with, uh, but also, you know, that you might disagree. Um, I also think for all the rap that Francis gets about being unclear, it's written Very clear, yeah. in remarkably clear style. Um, so... This is a long introduction. Uh, we're part of the 1517 Podcasting Network. You can go to 1517.org and find lots of great stuff. I encourage you to do that. Uh, Mike and I will both be out in San Diego, California with our wives um, for the Here We Still Stand conference uh, that will be in October. And so um, if you're interested in that and you're in the area, you can check that out at 1517.org as well. Uh, Mike, would you like to take our disclaimer? Long intro, no free-for-all, but we want to set the stage for the guys talking Catholic worship wars, Roman Catholic. Yeah. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employees, or for the Roman Catholic Church for that matter. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. that brings us to our main topic and as you've heard for 15 minutes um, we are going to be talking 
Roman Catholic worship wars and how maybe we can learn from them as Lutherans. Now, I will say, so far as um, worship wars go, uh, we, we've been doing this in Lutheranism longer than uh, the Roman Catholics have with this most recent one, with Novus Ordo and the TLM. Uh, Lutheranism is not immune to this. I will say, um, as a young as a young man, a young Lutheran, um, in college and seminary, uh, I was probably um, too invested um, in debates about this to a certain degree, although I will say one of the, the benefits was um, I really grew as a Lutheran by having to wrestle with these things as a Christian um, as time went on, and uh, having to wrestle with these things in the parish. Right, The parish is a, a pretty good um, tutor. Yeah, pretty good tutor. I like that. Pedagogy. Pedagogy, however you say it. Um, and so um, I think there's there's things that can be learned. I would say maybe the tenor of the Luther Wars have died down a bit, um, but probably only because the culture wars uh, took over. And sometimes the dividing lines... Um, those boundaries moved. Right. Where yeah. I was maybe found a compatriot. And partly because point. of the culture wars, I would say there were some that liturgically I really appreciated what they had to say, but now culturally... They are now on the, let's say, a different team. Yeah. Well, I don't want to be on a team, right? And then, you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm I'm saying like yeah, there, there's definitely a team vibe. The in some of the, the things were gerrymandered, right? Yeah, and um, and so um, this has practical value. I don't know necessarily all our laity are as aware of um, debates that might have been had among pastors or seminary professors, etc. But they've had uh, some experience of it in the pew. Um. Because these things that get debated somewhat maybe as an abstraction by young men in seminaries uh, or by pastors at pastors' conferences or online often will trickle down to the parish. And there I should find um, Francis, Bishop of Rome. I will grant him that. Roman Catholic Bishop of Rome. We shouldn't really... Why has Lutheranism not made a, a bishop of Rome for Lutheranism? There's got to be like at least eight Lutherans there. Bonhoeffer, you know, there was a group that he served in Barcelona. Well, I'm just thinking like because then the media, we could pitch a fit whenever they're like, you know, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, and we could be like the Roman Catholic Bishop of Rome because you have to be clear you could mean the Lutheran bishop. Yep. Of Rome, there may be in the the Lutheran World Federation. There may be. Kind of it's around. probably like under the whatever of I don't know. We should. I could have my first synodical resolution. Well, let's look up and like as a synod. Even if we just had to pay like four families and we rotate every year, four families live in Rome. Yeah, and they get served by a mission pastor, mm -hmm. and we just make him bishop of Rome. And Christian freedom. It's probably they're they're probably under some other. I don't know if they call them diocese always, but 
Well, I've I've got us um, I've got us downright distracted. Can I read this line now, Michael? So Francis writes, in visiting Christian communities, uh, which I he can't be doing with a low profile like. You know, people tend to know the Pope is coming. In visiting Christian communities, I have noticed that their way of living, the liturgical celebration is conditioned for better or unfortunately for worse by the way in which their pastor presides in the assembly. Um, and so here's good news. It's not specifically just a Lutheran worship or issue that the pastor is often uh, a driving force behind what happens and uh, some of the vitriol or the differences that can develop. This is a problem the church has had as long as it's been church. Already the apostles right right away are trying to establish their identities, who's greatest, you know, who's the Jesus favorite, stuff like this. And so um, we've all experienced this to some degree. And this is not, to the, in and of itself, it's not a bad thing to say every pastor is going to have peculiarities to how he presides. Um because he's going to have certain gifts. He has a certain personality. Um, he's had a certain experience of the liturgy from himself growing up and in school. And so this is partly going to be what Francis will get at as we're talking about traditional Latin Mass and Novus Ordo, that one of the problems is if it becomes too much about the the celebrant, right? So this can maybe be a contact point for us as as clergy as well. But go ahead, Mike, yes. You've got your finger up. I take it. The Evangelical it. Lutheran Church in Italy is led by, I think this guy's name is Dean Karsten Gerdes, and comma leader. So I'm wondering if leader is his name and Dean is, or leader is his title and Dean is his name. I'm going to do more research. Okay. 7,000 members. You like this idea though? Well, I want to know. There's already somebody, and he he is in Rome, and his address is via. Aurelia I just want to be able to like Antica. write to the New York Times and be like in your article. Well, I'm going to try to find his official title here right. while you talk. Okay. Well, I just threw it to you. I'm sorry. I don't know if you noticed that. No, I'm sorry. What did you okay. want me to talk about? That the contact. One of the one of the points of contact between Lutheran worship wars and Roman Catholic worship wars is that Francis points out that he says, for better or for worse, um, a parish's celebration of the Mass often takes on uh, the character, the peculiarities of its parish, its parish pastor um, or priest. But Roman Catholics do call that the parish pastor as well. And so that would be hopefully a contact point there. But maybe, Mike, um, I would say as part of research for this, Mike, you watched Latin Mass. You've been to Norvis Order before. Um, I grew up with Novus Ordo. I grew up in a, I would say, a reverent felt banner Novus Ordo parish, meaning we never had clown mass, polka mass. The priests said mass. That's what they were there for. They were serious. Um, but we definitely had, um, our nuns wore habits. Um, but there was some of the felt banner vibes as well, you know, um, which were not bad. But, uh, Probably some things that weren't exactly always by the book. Middle class American, blue collar American, right? Not a cathedral downtown, right? But in the but summer, mostly by the book. Um, and then Latin Mass, I had never been to until going to St. Stan's, and I've gone to um, St. Stan's a couple times. I've gone myself, 
And then I took my dad. It was interesting. Um, he grew up with the Latin Mass. And so I, went, I said, let's go see how similar this was uh, to what you grew up with. And there were parts he said, oh, I remember that. That was very similar. But then there were parts he said, oh, yeah, this was uh, this was much more formal or old school than even what he remembered. And there is part of that to the traditional Latin Mass movement um, that like the drive to be TLM enough, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I think this would also be a parallel to Lutheran worship wars. Um, on the side, probably, of the more traditional liturgy, and we have to, just a word of caution here for Wisconsin Synod. I used to be unfair to our Synod. Um, <clears throat> from the standpoint of, you know, I would talk about, well, we don't, why don't we observe more of the traditional liturgy of the Lutheran Church? Well, tradition works in a number of ways, and the fact is it has to be understood about the Wisconsin Synod is we were not historically a very liturgical church body. Um, our roots were in kind of this union type of Reformed and Lutheranism, pietistic type Lutheranism. Um, and unlike the Missouri Synod, which was Saxons who came over for religious regions, Many of our members were Pomeranians who came for economic reasons, and they found their way um, into our <clears throat> into our churches. And so, for a lot of our our people, for you know, 150 years, what to them would have been traditional liturgy um, was not anything remotely like what um, would have been taking place in the 16th century in Europe. And so I think we see similarly that in Lutheranism among the, if we can say, traditionalists, there is this kind of jumping over of a whole multiple generational experience of the church to go to a past and amongst the most rigid of those, um, which I would say at certain points I in my life was, there was this never-ending quest to be that enough, if that makes sense. On the flip side, and you see this with the Anything Goes Novus Ordo Masses, you can have those for whom any formality is considered, you know, this kind of like <coughs> restrictive, dead orthodox, you know, um, kind of view of Christianity and this um, unending need to innovate so that... Um, are you ever innovating enough? There always has to be a new thing. And I think a nice corrective to that is our Lutheran confessions. <clears throat> um, but we always we always will struggle to, to live up to what is best about our, our heritage. I'll throw it to you, Michael. Yeah. First, an update. Um, the, Italian, <coughs> the, the Italian Lutheran Church... Um, has uh, der deacon, which is translated like dean, right? And then vice deacons, but there's also a president of the synod and vice president of the synod. So I'm not sure who's who's in charge of what. Maybe we can email them. We will email Karsten Gerdes. Okay. So We'll uh, figure it out. There's an update. They are centrally located in the city of Rome via Aurelius something. Okay, now be brutally honest, Michael. Yeah. How much of what I just said in an attempt to throw it to you do you, do you have down? I have enough. Okay. Okay. Let me let me 
go broad for a second. I am convinced that um, we are uh, children of our time and that we don't really uh, always know that we are. Mm -hmm. So um, when we think about, all right, we had this, this old school way of doing uh, church. So for the Synodical Conference, that was the Lutheran hymnal from 1943 or whatever, page 15 or page 5. And then there was, hey, we need to freshen things up, right? So let's... And all the synods started doing this. Yep. So 1978, 82, 93, 96 would have been the new hymnals in those uh, ELCA, Missouri Synod, uh, Wisconsin Synod, and then and then the Evangelical Lutheran Synod. I may have some dates wrong there. Um, this also was a part of a vibe. Think 1960s. Think the baby boomer generation. Um, there was definitely in our society a a switch. Like we we have been doing these things in a very rigid way. Uh, the family seems to be set in a 1950s way. Uh, tract housing, um, a lot of things. The workplace, yeah. women in the workplace. <clears throat> so there is a point where it just explodes. Probably the 20s was a um, a beginning of that, but then you have the you have some things like the depression and a couple they world distracted wars us distracted us for a little bit. Uh, then you have the 1960s. I would say this is a part of the movement f from modernity to post-modernity. generals feel that almost everything needed to be updated. Yeah. So then um, you are also then attracted to um, things that are new. So while the criticism of, you know, this is, a, this is a logical fallacy, right? That because it's old, it's right. But there's also the logical fallacy that it's new, it's right. And this... Um Michael, you've hit on before, but just to make sure our listeners are clear, this was one of the big shifts of modernity, especially with the Enlightenment. This pre-Enlightenment, the most authentic thing, the best thing, you looked back and tried to recapture it. <clears throat> this was what the Renaissance wanted to do with the Enlightenment. That thing was in the future. This is the idea of uh, progress, right? progressive, is that this thing's in the future and we have to work towards. And so... Whereas before there was a bias towards the old, which could sometimes be unhealthy because sometimes older wasn't better. Now we have this bias towards the new, especially in America. World War II is over. America has finally embraced a role on the world stage that it was really reticent about, right? We really didn't want to even get into World War I. Uh, there's this optimism, a growing middle class. Um, you have changes from the war. Rosie the Riveter right, is now working. Um, what does this mean? So you're going to have um, you know, uh, questions about feminism, civil rights regarding that, race, whatever, sexual revolution with technology giving the ability to have um, you know, sex separated from conception. Um, we're traveling. Uh, most families now can afford a vehicle. You're seeing more of the country, but also more of the world with air travel. Um, all of these things, right, are convincing people, uh, and, and, and not just the church, businesses, governmental institutions, universities. And this, we get a double whammy, Mike, because higher ed and the church both 
went hardcore on these things. Yeah. If we don't change, we'll die. Yeah, change or die. Uh, and this this modern mindset, I would say, then becomes overripe um, in this situation we're talking about where you're addicted to, to, to the new in an individualistic way. So this is the point of... And this is the boomer's big contribution, yeah. is this? Yeah. So it, it's modernity, it's, it's overripe modernity, which is at once the inevitable conclusion to it, but also a critique of it, but not a very necessarily a very good one. Yeah. Okay. And you'll get, if I can just throw in one yep. more connective yep. piece, and keep in mind, I'm not saying that, um, that this is all causality, but with increased travel... You have less generational um, families in one place. With the growth of the suburbs, you're losing the old neighborhoods. The connectivity, think parish connect. In Milwaukee, these beautiful churches were built by People neighborhoods. People in the neighborhoods. Community, and not just the churches, the hospitals, you know, community centers. The, so this growth in individuality makes sense too with this. Um, you're, you're kind of breaking up the old the thing, the communal ties. Um, and so maybe we're going to get together at Thanksgiving and Christmas, but the idea that the family often got together every Sunday, right? Um, or that you, you saw your neighborhood in church, um, at the same time that this is happening, that, you know, newness, but also then enhanced individuality. And I think we sometimes forget this about the American scene, um, is that, uh, sometimes people think anything communal is socialism, right? But uh, if you look at like at our seminary when they built the seminary and the picture of all the people that turned out for that, um, go look at old newspapers. I mean, if you've never been down to the main Milwaukee Public Library, you should go if you live in the Milwaukee area. But <laughs> look at the microfiche for the old newspapers and like a lot of the big famous buildings in the city when they were founded. The whole community was there. Um, while uh, and Milwaukee did have some socialist mayors, so there was some socialism. But Look, one example, uh, they filled up Soldier Field for the anniversary of the catechism. Right. Yep. So there was, um, in general, in American society, and De Tocqueville will talk about it. But there was a communalism that that it was still you had capitalism, but there was a sense of community that erodes with technology. And we've seen that exacerbated in our own day with social media. But um, Social media is not the problem. It was already there. Right. That's only gas on the fire. So to, I'm going to throw it back to you, Mike, but you hit on two important things. The proclivity to see newness as what's best, and then um, the maybe even often unintentional breaking up of community. Sorry, I'll throw it back. And institutions. <laughs> So yeah, and maybe you want to unpack that a little bit yeah, if you want. But. Ironically, the it's under the guise of being more open-minded and inclusive. When you, when you cut off history and stuff like that, you actually are going to be more inclusive. Um, then it's everybody's everybody's their own interpreter of everything. Because and some will see, and this is always the funny thing to me, is people that will get all upset about the communal ties. Um, part of the thing about breaking those ties, if we're going to be more inclusive, as you said, Michael, is to forge new artificial ones. 
and both we see this with the political right and left today, is this forging of more artificial, less organic ties, which plays into the church because I no longer just go to the parish that's in my neighborhood. And this is amongst Lutherans too because talk to your grandparents or great-grandparents about how did they decide where to go to church. Well, it's closest. they lived right there. We walked there. Um, now those ties become artificial. And so even today, what do we do? We, we find our we church shop, right? Um, and, and that um, becomes uh, something that feeds into this too, I would say. Right, so that you add the consumerism. We create to, community. Yeah, we consumer, the, and then we get to choose and we're kind of in charge. And what you're talking about is you've lost all of these things that formed us. Right. So we're losing formation. Rather, we're seeking things out that instead of us being formed, we're seeking things out. We're forming them. We try to, yeah. yeah. We form them by our, by our, um, by our purchase, yeah. Yeah. by our consumerism. We, we, we drive the market, right? And so anyway, back to the original point. So we had this, this similar sort of uh, trajectory from in, in the Lutheran church. And I would say all churches, and this is my main point that, all of this stuff is a part of our zeitgeist. It's it's sort of sort of here, and that's why I'll say this again. I'm happy that everybody that we're we we pay attention in the church to different generations, I Gen, Gen X, all that kind of stuff. That's important for ministry. My one critique is: can we let it? Can we let the kids get out of middle school before we have identified right. them? And you, when you're and stop identifying them as like. The suburban experience. When you when you interject yourself into the the social experiment with the Heisenberg effect or something like yeah. that, right? You are you are you have contaminated the data, right? But the second thing is, while I'm I'm fine with the generational thing, but isn't that American and very market marketing terms, right? We're like, there's a great generation, then this generation or whatever. We need to equally see grand philosophical eras at play here. So I think it's, I wouldn't say inevitable because nothing's really from our point of view necessarily inevitable. But if you go from modernity, it's going to become overripe. Um, there is going to be a reaction against that. Uh, in this case, it became very individualistic. And so at the, about the same time, the Vatican II comes and made some very good improvements, as was our hymnals making very good improvements from TLH. Like, they're more usable. Um, there's more variety, all that it's kind of stuff. It's in the vernacular. It's in the, all TLH, yes, was in English, but it wasn't it was in the via, vernacular. Right. All of those things are parallel. Now, one of the consequences, of course, is that everybody now is given permission to do what they want. For a Lutheran, it was always there because we weren't tied to a tradition. Or they are, they perceive they're given permission. Yeah, And this is what I mean against by Vatican II, the same as Trent, right? What was Trent? Some people make Trent more than the text. And so and so, then you, 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 you get a polka mass. By the way, I have no idea what the Heisenberg effect was. I'm agreeing with you, hoping you. I don't know if it's Heisenberg or not. It's okay. something like that. Someone's probably listening who knows, and I oh, just yeah. want to say sometimes when I don't know, but Mike seems to know, I just go, uh huh, and then. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, right. or for us. All right, um, 
so uh, there is then going to be another reaction in the Roman Catholic Church after the Vatican II, and we'll get to the differences. We'll, we'll talk about the differences in a second. There was going to be a reform of the reform, like, okay, this new stuff came out, let's reset, think, think about it. In the same way, it's after the, a, a new set of hymnals and then an explosion of whatever the pastor came up with that Saturday evening for church the next day, there was a healthy interest in, well, wait a minute, we threw out something, but I'm not sure we really understood that. So um, there becomes a rise in, uh, and there's always been liturgical renewals here and there. There were some in the 30s. It came back again, I would say, in the 90s and the the 2000s, where like, let's actually think this through. And what are the theological ramifications of all of this? Catholicism, Benedict really encouraged this as there was a revision of the text of the Mass too, to make it more in line with um, the traditional wording. So most famously, um, to Lutheran ears, Mike, if I say, the Lord be with you, what do you say? Um, I want to say, and with your spirit, but I will also say, and also with you. And also with you. I grew up in the Roman Mass saying, and also with you, but with the revision of the Mass, um, now I would say, and with your spirit. Um, In that pop, um, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. Now is, um, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter into my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. I believe that's what it is now. Um, So there is some subtle revisions that take place in that way. All of this is in the context from our, from our little corner of the global world is within a still sort of modern way of thinking. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a thinking thing. So church is, and, and, and Francis is going to point this out. Church is a educational sort of thing. I learn information. Or it's a, um, turning, uh, knobs and and levers i'm going through the most i'm doing everything right yeah by it's not a whole body experience sort of thing no that could be misunderstood we'll get there um but in liturgical renewal and we would can i interrupt for one second yes don't lose your thought but that made me turning buttons and levers i've always wondered if this was just something peculiar to where i grew up or a michigan thing when you were a kid did you do the um hi my name is Joe. Um, I have a wife and three kids, and I work in a button factory. One day, my boss came to me and said, Joe, are you busy? I said, no. He said, well, turn that button with your right hand, and then you do the whole thing, left hand, and then you do like a foot. Yeah. Like in gym class? No. If anybody else did the Hi, My Name is Joe song, please do. Um, let us know on Facebook. Message us or shoot us an email. The email address is on the website for the podcast. What is it? Let the bird fly a podcast. So, but I've always wondered if that was just me. So, okay, yeah, maybe. Um, I don't know where I was. You at. said to re- you would re- promise to read I, I, I did. But then I was so entertained by your dance. This is all in the context of a late modern going into postmodern age where you, again, have a separation from the physical and spiritual. You don't have a context. Con- you don't have a concept of uh, um, of sacred space. Um, reverence is something that's not in an American um, 
priori- priority in America. Anything that's metaphysical needs to be yeah. over-explained. Yeah. It's, it, it, if we are religious, uh, God is going to be up. The first article, Christianity, God is going to be up there. We have, we have this plan. The symbolic needs to be painfully overt, which is where rather than just what is, you're the liturgy guy. Say the, do the red, say the black. Is that it? Yes. Uh, so, you know, like do the rubrics, say the thing. Like there becomes this need to like explain everything. Explain everything. Explain everything. Um, fancy stuff like art and and high music is looked down upon. So that's, get, that's at a very American. God awful. Right. 70s so we churches. don't we don't we're not like this is not unique to the our little corner of Lutheranism. No. This is a this is my, my point. This is these are overarching things. So when we look at then the reform of the reform of Vatican II. And we look at people being interested in in liturgics, which was not a thing in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and, and into the 90s, with some exceptions. You have a parallel there. Then the next step, of course, is going to be, hopefully, better dialogue between all of these people, which we have seen. But then you're also going to have people who are going to go to the extreme of saying um, in order to truly be Roman Catholic, to be truly a, a Lutheran, you need to be saying, you need to be dressing this way and doing these things, right? So the fear always was that you are going to, once you are interested in liturgical things, then it becomes a law. And for us who say that's a leap in logic, that does happen. And to those people who do that, you're hurting the cause, right? Because we, we, are, we are very much going to be about liturgical renewal and thinking about these things. But we understand that there, there's always going to be this niche. And, and you see it in Roman Catholicism where it's, 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 you know, uber, uber. This is actually what the Trentine Mass is and you have to, you have to do it. And that fights against maybe a saint stands who's saying, man, we really, this, we really dig this and there's good reasons to do this. And this is, this is attractive in a, uh, you know, understand that the right way. I'm not attracting somebody to the faith, but you're saying this is church and this is what I think church is rather than just a sort of spiritualized version of my consumeristic society that I am, I'm not feeling fulfilled. And, and in. maybe we're being overly fair to St. Stan's. Maybe St. Stan's is sure. that, but I just have not got right. a sense that they're snooty about what they're doing. So we, we have all, uh, both of us have appreciated Lutheran churches where they really do a, what we would call what our Lutheran confessions would call a mass and do it well. And, and are, are fulfilling and forming people, by the way, of every generation and of every race. You, you want to talk about being more, more diverse. Don't give me this, excuse my language, but BS about how the historic liturgy is this uniquely Northern European thing. You know what's uniquely Western is a stage with a band. All right. That is about as middle-class Orange County as you can get. All right. Um, it not exclusively, obviously there's exceptions, but, um, don't, don't, it, it's just a, it's, it's a flat out falsity to say, if you do the historic liturgy, then you are being, uh, exclusive 
with the undertones of you're probably bigots and racist. That's not only is it inaccurate, I can make the case for the exact opposite. Okay. Whereas on the flip side, there can be the same um, zeal that gets put into you, which is also, again, a very Orange County Western aesthetic of like um, appropriating the uh, um, the uh, adornments of the Western Rite, the traditional um, liturgy, where you can get guys who it essentially is becoming playing dress up it's, it's, and chancel prancing, it's a as they were sometimes it's, accused of. It's a virtue signaling. Right. And, and you see that sometimes where Mike and I both like to wear the collar and more people in our church body are wearing the collar, and most of them are, are doing it with very good reasons. And it's For the sake of right. pastoral care. But you will sometimes bump into someone for whom you can tell this has really become an aesthetic, um, and largely an aesthetic. And that can be or about drawing attention to the person. Um, don't get me wrong, I wear a collar partly to draw attention to myself, but not to draw attention to myself like, look at Wade, he's this. But to be like, um, you need a pastor, like, that's oh I'm a pa the same as this is my vocation the police officer would right. yeah this like, is my we, vocation can we take a quick break and pause this is that okay well I don't you're the one that's got to okay, put I'm it gonna back together pause for a second and I'm gonna cough away so all right yeah. all right sorry about that that brings us back Michael I had a I had a good cough yeah um, it was quite something yeah all right so uh, thanks thanks for putting up with our interruption there but. Uh, we, we're talking about the, the collar, and that's not what we're really talking about here, but that's one example of um, somebody who would, who would wear a collar, and there would be people from maybe a previous generation would say, uh, not just, oh, that's Roman Catholic, because most people actually do know the difference between, like, the uh, very few Christian groups don't have people who wear a collar. Like, in the, like the 1960s, people, uh, you know, uh, pro, you know, Marching, a lot of that. It's not like it's a thing of respect, right? Uh, just Baptists and Wells people <laughs> get upset about it. Uh, but they may say, "But that's oh, that's authority. That's old. That's whatever." And then you say, "Actually, it's really this beautiful vocational thing that opens up a lot for the gospel." And then you're like, "Actually, I'm going to do this, and and it's going to be actually a pretty cool thing." But then you can also have people who are going to say, and I will use the word virtue signaling here, right? Um, about people who complain about virtue signaling all the time. Like, we all do it, right? Yep. And, and uh, it, it becomes not much different than the hippie wanting to be countercultural, which is, once again, about as American kind of thing you can be. I mean, businesses make money off teenagers and every generation off this desire to be countercultural. And so <clears throat> what I mean to say is, to echo your point you're making, Michael, that both the Novus Ordo people and the traditional Latin Mass people can be doing a very cultural thing with um, what seems to be, um, you know, a fight about religious liturgy. These things can be very intertwined. And, um, and so the TLM, or in our circles, a very traditional divine service, can become just another fad. Instead of letting the theology, and I would say the philosophy uh, of the world that's around us, and, and the, you can't 
dismiss that either. Letting that drive why we do what we do. Uh, and a lot of this is much of it is just never taught to people. So you threw away what you did not understood. You, you, under, you did not understand. And I think that's a great and, point because I think there was a major, and I would say even me going through Catholic school, I got a very good education, but I did not get very yep. good catechesis. No, nope, no. Nope. And, and a lot of that stuff then, both in Lutheran and uh, um, Roman Catholic circles, I'm thinking of Ignatius Press in the Roman Catholic circles, wanted to explain these things. And I think here, part of this, what enabled um, this poor catechesis, even though everyone was in catechism, in both Lutheranism and Catholicism, was the very thing people are up in arms about now, um, was that uh, there was this cultural Christianity. You just you sent your kids to catechism or to Bible class. Sometimes you didn't go to church, but you, you made sure your kids went to RCA or IA or catechism class. And so um, this is not to, to blame the catechists necessarily always, but you had a group of kids that this was just a thing they do, and then they got their pictures taken, and then you didn't see them again anymore because they were at the same time being catechized not to take these things overly serious. This is just part of, of it was not formation. what an American does. You know, you go to church. And then the solution was make church fun and cool. That was not the problem. That was not the problem, nor was it the solution. And I think we've pretty much gotten to that point where we realized that that was a stupid thing to think about. I think so where we are right now is you have an opportunity to teach it, right? Um, and so I'm happy to have these kinds of, of battles or whatever because I think that, that iron sharpens iron, that kind of thing. But what was largely lost in all of this is what are we talking about here? Like I would, I would suggest, I would suggest that there's always a difference between uh, a confession, the church's confession, and what is actually believed by the people. And then there are certain things that the people are very confident in about their confession. And I would say worship of all of these things has the biggest disconnect between all three. What it actually is, what people actually. What, what it actually is, what people believe it is, and their confidence. And it's I like would those say... those memes where it's like, um, you know, how people think I... What I people think I do, yeah, what I yeah, actually do. I would say that there are certain things where the, 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 the average layperson doesn't understand and they know that they understand and so they're not super confident about it. Worship is one of those things where the opinion is as high as their ignorance. As, as big their ignorance is, and so is their confidence in their ignorance. I think worship's probably the one that... And it, partly because we spent a generation telling them that their opinion was vital to good worship. You know, that the, because if we're going to serve you, like we're like McDonald's, we got to know what you prefer. And so it's to be fair to, to people thinking that way. Very consumer. They were catechized in a, in a set. They were formed. I think formation is a word we just can do a lot with in the future, Mike. But they were formed um, to think in that way. Like they're, they're, I'm, I'm, I'm going to not teach you this, but then I'm going to expect you to tell me what to do about this. I'm not going to give you the theology about it. Right. I'm not going to teach you what the word sanctus even means or why we sing it. 
and I'm going to say, do you like it or not? It's kind of how we treat food in America. Like, you know, you're going to have opinions about what's good food, but while you're going to school, American cafeterias are going to fill you with the most unhealthy foods possible, you know, pumped with fat and salt. Well, are we are we really equipping you to make educate? What are you you're turning out me? You know where I'm like, oh, cheese, salt, grease. This yep. is good food. Well, did did I really get to develop a palate? And then I'm going to blame you for being making poor choices. Right now that I've addicted you to mm-hmm. salt and sugar. Right. Um, I'll speak for both of us that we're probably not going to give up salt and sugar. Oh, I'm not. No. Um, and I'm, I and I will take responsibility for that. At the same time, I fully realize that um, I've been sort of set up to fail. I've been trained to be yeah. an addict. So we have set people up to fail miserably about talking authentically and intelligently about worship. I would I would say that that may sound like a very bold statement, but I I think I I think it's true. And so you get some of the loudest proponents for TLM or for Novus Ordo are not... They're, Both sides. They're essentially making identical arguments for different things. Um, preference-based, um, uh, a shallow understanding of what is being caught, taught. And accusing other people like you're not... You're not uh, uh, doctrinally sound enough, or you don't care about ge- right. p- getting taking to the Jesus. worst examples. Like, yes, there's some terrible Novus Ordo masses, and they're kind of fun to watch on YouTube. There's whole, there's collections of them. You 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 will cry in shame for humanity, and also you will cry in laughter. Whenever the Protestants Protestants get frustrated, there's this temptation to to swim the Tiber, right? To go Rome. Or, well, we don't want a pope. And we also don't want any sort of doctrine of justification, apparently. <clears throat> the so Bosphorus. Yeah, so we're going to swim the Bosphorus. We're going to become Eastern Orthodox. Um, if you're tempted by the Eastern Orthodoxy, check out like the what's going on with the Patriarch of Moscow. Like, <clears throat> If you think that's going to like somehow make solve you your counter-cultural and solve your problems... With that said, we can learn stuff from the Eastern Orthodox like everybody else, yes. If you're thinking, I'm going to go to Rome, there's bishops and there will be uniformity, go on YouTube and watch some of the the Vatican do bloopers or whatever that the TLMers have made. That being said, some of the Novus Ordo people will present the worst of the, the TLM. And I think what we can learn... And I do. Th- I really hope we can do another episode where we, we dive will. into this. We will. Um, <clears throat> is that, and and this is why, um, Mikey, watching and, and me going to these, um, the real debate should be about how how are people being formed and what is being confessed by these things. And I think with TLM, you could have a big argument of um, there is. There are some things that are vital to Roman Catholicism that come out better in the TLM. There are some things that are vital about Roman Catholicism that come out in the Norris Ordo. How this episode started was I, once in a while, I know, Mike especially, but some other friends, aren't getting enough social media. So, like, 
I'll screenshot some stuff from Twitter, and I screenshot some stuff from Catholic Twitter, and it was basically saying the Novus Ordo is Luther's mass and, like, <clears throat> blaming Lutherans for stuff. And a funny thing is that the some of the more conservative Novus Ordo um, Catholics will even blame the Lutherans because they'll be like, it's not our fault that we have 87 Haugen hymns <laughs> in our hymnal. Because <laughs> I think Marty Haugen is e ELCA, isn't he? So, <clears throat> you know, they're like, it's not our fault people didn't have discernment about <laughs> about what's in there. Um, but um, there's something very Roman Catholic about both of these expressions of the Mass. Uh, there's also, interestingly, ways in which the Norvis Odo is the more historic Mass, that they've recaptured things from antiquity. Things that, or 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 cut down on all of the medieval piling upon... <laughs> prayers and all this right. kind of stuff. Yeah. But you read, for instance, um, Peter Brown about Augustine in, uh, in his biography or um, other works and like uh, where the altar was and Augustine being like right down by the crowd, which was sometimes a dangerous... We always picture like Augustine preaching to people that are just like sitting in pews and like, oh my gosh, St. Augustine's our bishop. I'm getting here. There are people who are like, you know, you stink, you know, <clears throat> um, that are upset about different things he's said or done. The uh, there's there's things in those descriptions that are closer to Vatican II, but that being said, there's some truth to some of the Vatican II stuff being kind of Lutheran in the sense of Luther also said it. Um, to give an example of something Luther said that I agree with is is the mass should be in the vernacular. I'm a big fan of that. Um, if you have a theology of proclamation, people have to be able to understand what's being said. One of the things Luther said that I'm not as big a fan of, and I think you said you're not as big a fan of, is um, pushing the altar forward and um, the the celebrant, the pastor, standing behind it for the Lord's Supper. I don't think it's wrong. And I think it actually, there's times it's done, and I really dig it. This is not always done well. Sometimes it's hokey. I prefer ad orientum, that, that you're facing the altar, and I, like the rest of the congregation, face God as a sinner, but then God gives me the gifts to give to the and, people. And we'll explain all that. Yeah. But, yeah. but uh, that's uh, also uh, Luther. Allowing communion in two kinds. Right. Um, which was is a big one for people. Uh, a lot of these things Luther also said, but it's kind of disingenuous to act like. And there was a desire by Vatican II to be open to dialogue with Protestants. This is the whole separa separated brethren dialogue. But that's not, you don't have to look to Luther for liturgical, that, al right. that already existed. And um, and the Novus Ordo was supposed to be more accessible, partly because it's in English, to Protestants. Um, but I did get a kick out of that. I shared that. And then we thought, okay, this could be a, a decent episode. Um, at what, what time are we at right now? 102. I, I would suggest that we wrap this up and then our, we begin our next episode with explaining, okay, what are the main differences between the Tridentine Mass and the Novus Ordo? Explain that and then go into that. Would that yeah. be okay? Because I don't think we have enough time. No, that's that. fine yeah. by me. So those of you who I'm are still waiting for an explanation, Mike is we'll going to take there. a couple minutes and you're going to give a coherent wrap-up to this and then you're going to say, don't forget to say about the birth. Okay. So... Um, we are people of both uh, body and soul. We live in time and space. Liturgy is not something that you can't ignore. You just can't. 
you're going to, you, you cannot not have an opinion about this. If your opinion is, I don't think it matters. And everyone has a liturgy. This is an opinion and everybody has a liturgy. So these are inevitable discussions that we're going to have. You, you can't get away from it. Again, if you don't think it's important enough, that says something about your theology. Flat, I mean, I don't think there's, you can debate that. So we have to discuss what's the theological underpinnings of all of this. And as we have the so-called worship wars, which, you know, are inflamed in all denominations, this is part of our culture. This is, this is grounded in our, our, the, the philosophical era that we're in, and it helps to admit that and understand that because it, it will have to do with the incarnation, sacramental nature of God, how we look at institutions, how we think about formations, how we think about truth, how we think about what's the relationship between the individual and the community, all of those sacred space, all of those things play, play a part. So what we would like to do next time is, okay, let's get into the nuts and bolts and let's, here's five or 10 things, we probably won't get to 10, but here's five or 10 things that uh, the, 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 the traditional Latin mass does that was then either changed or something else was allowed in the Novus Ordum. Why does that make people upset? What are the theological underpinnings of that? I'll make the case that the theology, is, for instance, of the sacrifice of the mass is still there in the Novus Ordum. It's just in the work of the people kind of thing. How do we as Lutherans uh, deal with that question? Do we have that, can we fall into this is the work of the people? Can we understand that correctly? Or can we go in a different direction? Uh, spoiler alert, we do, it's called vocation, but we'll get to that. With that said. Which he gets to in here. With that time. said, we are gonna be charitable about f f everything. We are gonna ground things in the gospel. This is not laws. This is not laws that we are uh, laying down. At the same time, we don't want to commit ourselves to our own sinful, sometimes selfish, create everything in our image. You haven't solved the problem. That's the wrong kind of freedom. So we're talking about freedom and love here, right? So we are free from something, but we are also free for something. So uh, we'll probably get into a little bit of an opinion. That's okay. But don't let us get in the way of how you think about that. Go ahead and let the bird fly.